Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. A number of years ago, the term the everything bubble was coined to describe not only the sheer number, but also the sheer size of bubbles that we saw not only here in the United States, but worldwide, not only in asset classes, but also various categories of debt. And it's a bubble that I believe is alive today. I hesitate to use the term alive and well, but certainly still hanging on today. And the the idea behind everything, that everything bubble was to distinguish it from bubbles of the past. And so in the late 90s, early 2000s, we went into a recession because partly because of a bubble popping. And today, people that that understand what happened back then would likely call it a tech bubble. It was a bubble that primarily was located around uh, companies that were overvalued because of overzealous or greedy or naive investors that threw too much money at technologies that either A, didn't really exist and were just ideas, or B, were, were not ready for prime time per se. And so you saw a bubble popping in the early 2000s. It was a tech bubble primarily. And then in the mid 2000s, leading up to the Great Recession and the Great Financial Crisis, we had here in the United States and in many other countries what people would call a housing bubble. Now, that's not the only part of it, but but primarily sought in housing and real estate, where, where those assets were overvalued. And in many ways, the the debt surrounding the purchase of those assets, mortgages in many cases, when we're talking about consumers, there was too much. And there and there was too much debt that was lended, lent, lended to uh, low credit worthy consumers, right? Subprime, subprime mortgage crisis was a big part of the popping of that bubble. Well, this time around, beginning, you know, I don't know when this term was coined, the everything bubble, 2015, 16, 17. But this time around, this bubble is no longer just in tech. It absolutely has been in tech at times and still is today. You see that in the the FANG stocks, the Facebook, Amazon, uh, Apple, Netflix, Google, uh, and then some other companies that you could kind of consider more tech-related, whether it's uh, Uber or Lyft or WeWork or uh, Tesla, you know, companies that are supposed to be cutting edge uh, disruptors and whatnot, which are massively overvalued, in many cases, massively unprofitable. You see it in housing as well, right? The the bubble in housing here in the United States may not be as large as it was back in the mid 2000s. It's it's likely not in most cities, most areas. Now, it's not necessarily the case worldwide. Places like Canada, uh, Australia, and others are, are still you know, very overvalued. But it's not as big. But it's still there. I believe that those assets are overvalued. But then this this everything bubble goes so far beyond that. Just in terms of asset classes, you have the obvious one, the stock market in a bubble. But you also have uh, many different debt-based bubbles. The, the student debt bubble. Auto loan 
bubble, the sovereign debt bubble, maybe the, the largest of them all, the corporate debt bubble. And the list goes on and on of these different components of the everything bubble that, again, for the most part, are alive today. Maybe not alive and well, but certainly alive. And another key concept of this everything bubble is that it's a worldwide phenomenon. That is something that we can see in Europe, the United States, China, Japan, and on and on. That this isn't a purely United States phenomenon this time around. So the reason I'm bringing up this everything bubble, which isn't something I haven't talked about specifically or use that term a whole lot uh, in, in many, many months, is because I want to talk about what is perhaps the biggest bubble of them all. And I'm not necessarily talking about the stock market. I'm not necessarily talking about fiat currency, though fiat currency is inextricably. Fiat currency is certainly linked to this bubble that I'll be discussing. The bubble I'm talking about is the bubble in the sovereign bond markets. So as of right now, as of the time that I'm recording this video, there's about $15 trillion worth of sovereign bonds worldwide that are currently yielding negative rates. So so let's take some time to, to try and wrap our minds around that. Negative rates on a bond, right? So the idea behind this is if I'm going to buy, let's say, $1,000 of a of, of bond, $1,000 bond from Germany, right? Let's say it's a one-year bond. And let's say for argument's sake, that it has a negative yield of uh, 0.5%, negative 0.5%, right? And so when I buy this $1,000 one-year bond, at the end of that one year, I'm not going to be making positive 0.5%. I'm not going to receive $1,050 for for lending that money, for, for holding on to that for, for until it's maturity. No, the, the bondholders will actually be receiving $950. They'll actually be receiving less than what they paid for it. And this isn't just, you know, in the past, it's, you know, been very small segments of, of the overall sovereign. I shouldn't say small, but about a third of what it is today or, or, or half of what it is today in terms of the total amount of negative yielding sovereign debt and in places like Japan or maybe Germany or, or, or Switzerland. Uh, but today we're talking about 15 trillion. We're talking about countries like, like Austria having negative yielding debt or, or what's the other one? I want to say it's like Slovakia or Slovenia, you know, just these, these countries that you wouldn't consider to be I don't know, trustworthy over the long term, and yet they have negative yielding. Yet the entire German yield curve, all the way up to 30 years, I think is how far they go, is negative. A 30-year bond with a negative yield on it. And this is true for a lot of Japanese debt as well. $15 trillion worth of this. And that's just that's just when we're talking about the nominal yields. Right? If we take into consideration the idea of real rates, i.e. when you take into consideration inflation and that, how that affects those rates, that number balloons even higher. All of a sudden, the United States, much of our yield curve, would be considered negative yielding if we consider inflation. 
I mean, look at the short end of the curve, the one year, the two year, that's well below what the current rate of inflation is, even by official numbers, which is, you know, probably around 2%, slightly above, slightly below. Uh, Unofficially, it's likely much, much higher. And so it very well could be the case that the entire U.S. yield curve, when we're talking about real rates, is negative all the way up to 30 years. How crazy is that? $15 trillion worth of debt that is negative yielding. Now, I want to I want to talk about kind of a couple big points about this and kind of the ramifications of what's going on here and how bad this is going to be when this bubble ultimately pops, because it will, just like every other bubble in this, this so-called everything bubble. But I want to start off with, I think, a really important question that some of you may be asking is, why? When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Why would anyone in their right mind choose to buy negative yielding debt? Well, there's a couple different reasons why it takes place. I'm not going to rationalize their irrationality, but there's a couple reasons as to why various institutions and investors do it. The first one being maybe the most obvious is speculation. Investors buy it because as bond yields go down or, or, go more and more negative in terms of bond prices, that translates to a higher bond price. And so the idea behind this is they're going to speculate. They're going to buy a German bond at negative 0.5% in hopes that this bubble will continue to grow and they can sell it when the yield's at negative 0.6 or negative 0.55. And all of a sudden they better profit because they're not necessarily holding it to maturity. And so that yield doesn't matter. What matters more to them is that the price is going to go up and they can find the so-called greater fool that will buy it from them. That's maybe the most obvious. And those those speculators, uh, whether it be hedge funds or, or other investors, those are out there. Absolutely. But that can't be the total explanation for this. I, 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 it's, it's, and it's certainly not, right? This entire bubble cannot be predicated, I, I would hope not, entirely just on speculators and the idea of the greater fool. And so another big part of why these yields are so low is various institutions that have bought them by choice or need to buy them. So the ones that really buy them by choice, I'm talking about central banks, right? That's the elephant in the room that I haven't talked a whole lot about yet. But but as part of quantitative easing, central banks go out and buy government bonds. They buy, uh, you know, German bonds, uh, uh, French bonds, Spanish bonds, Italian bonds, etc. So in the case of, of the EU, it would be the European Central Bank. It's the Fed here in the US, the, the Bank of Japan and Japan. So central banks go out, they print money, and they buy these bonds. And, and when they create that artificial demand, they're going to be forcing down the, the yields and, and, and bringing up the prices of those bonds, right? It'd be no different than if central banks printed money and bought stocks. I would drive up stock prices, in theory. 
that's kind of the elephant in the room. But then there's also various financial institutions that, you know, in their right mind might not want to buy negative yielding debt. I mean, who would? But in many ways, they're forced to for liquidity and reserve requirements. So when banks, you know, build their balance sheet, to to maybe oversimplify this, when banks build their balance sheet and when banks then lend money or otherwise create exposure for themselves and their assets, they need to have a certain amount in reserve in case things go south. And these reserve requirements are largely in place because in the past things have gone south and, and banks found out, hey, our reserves were nowhere near sufficient to prevent a total collapse of our bank. And so these types of reserve requirements were put in place. And usually the assets that can qualify as as what would be called tier one reserve assets are, are very liquid or trusted assets. So sovereign bonds are on that list. Uh, gold, actually, as of as of the implementation of uh, Basel III, is also on that list. Those types of assets. And so, if you can get a bond at at this rate, you know that meets a reserve requirement, even if it's not the best for profitability. It it meets that requirement. Now, I mean, another idea about this lower and lower rates is that it's really bad for banks. Just like lower lower interest rates by central banks are really bad for banks. And we're seeing the banking sector, especially in Europe, absolutely decimated. You can see it in their stock market prices, absolutely destroyed by these low yields. On the, honestly, on, on, on the brink of, of total stock collapse, right? You know, some of these companies are looking at like, what, 20%, 10% of their all-time highs. That's how low their stocks are at this point. So it's certainly not great for the stock or for for the for the stocks or the companies, but it does help meet their reserve requirements. But then another potential reason as to why they hold these bonds is one that I actually heard brought up lately. It was by uh, uh, David McIlvaney, Kevin Oric over on uh, McIlvaney uh, Weekly Commentary. They talked about maybe you know because of the liquidity of sovereign bonds especially these these more reputable ones like like german or us or japanese bonds maybe this is done in part to provide more liquidity to the bank itself because they're looking so much for liquidity perhaps because of a fear about a future lack of liquidity in the broader financial system and that's maybe the most scary uh the most <laughs> frightful of reasons for for them to to be buying these negative yielding bonds because they're afraid of something even worse coming along. But again, I, 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 it's irrational, but I also get why they'd be doing that. So that's kind of to answer that question of why anybody in the right mind would buy this kind of debt. But I also want to talk about the implications of this. And, and the first one I already sort of stated, this is a bubble right now that eventually will pop. I wouldn't be surprised if this is a bubble that continues to be blown up, especially as other bubbles deflate, as we see the stock market bubble pop, or the real estate market, or the corporate bond market pop. We'll see this bubble potentially blow up more and more because of the whole bonds are a safe haven asset kind of, of, of philosophy. And so we could see you know, $20, $25 trillion worth, or even more, 
of sovereign debt that is negative yielding before this is all over. But believe me, it's eventually going to be over. It's eventually going to pop. And at that point, that is kind of the ultimate bubble popping. Because right now, investors or institutions that choose to put their money in these sovereign bonds that are negative yielding or negative yielding in terms of real rates are really basing this on the, the, the assumption that inflation is going to be controlled or non-existent or negative deflation in the future. And if that's the case, then, then it's not too damaging for them. But we're also talking about these bonds that are dated 10, 20, 30, 50 years out into the future. I think Austria has like a hundred year bond out there. That's actually yielding a pretty low rate. They're basing these low rates or negative rates on the idea that inflation is always going to be low. And the odds of inflation being low over the length of a 10 year bond, never mind a hundred year bond, is actually pretty low. There's a very high risk of inflation spiking, which will absolutely wipe out holders of this debt. Because you know what's worse than a negative yielding bond? A negative yielding bond in an inflationary environment. They're not going to be negative yielding anymore. They're going to sell off. This bubble's going to pop. And it's going to be absolutely ugly. Never mind what's going on in the, the stock market and that eventual bubble popping, what happens in the bond market is going to be even worse. It's going to be what brings down governments. It's going to be what brings down the banking sector. And, and don't get me wrong, long-term, higher yields are good. They're good for savers. They're good for pensions. They're good for retirement. They're good for financial institutions. But along the way, when we see this massive popping of this bubble, it's going to be ugly. You know, the way bonds work is that as they get closer and closer to zero are ultimately negative in terms of yields. The rise in price is sort of parabolic, meaning that the rise in price between uh, 3% and a 2% yield is not as large of a rise in price as the 2 to 1% or 1 to 0% yield. It's parabolic. And so even if yields moved up 1% from where they are right now, the amount of value for the holders of those bonds that would be wiped out would be massive on the scale of hundreds of billions or trillions. On the scale of, yeah, this could be sparking the next financial crisis. That's the reality of this bond market bubble. And it very well could be the last one to go. That one and, and fiat currencies themselves. But when it does, that's when things get really bad. That's when we have to be really worrying about you know, the, the prospects for, for entire nations falling apart or entire uh, uh, international communities like, like the European Union absolutely dissolving because of the strife and because of the instability created by the popping of this bubble. The biggest bubble of them all. As always, I'd like to thank you guys from the bottom of my heart for watching this video. Listen to this podcast and God bless.